The following audio message is from Neighborhood Church in Overland Park, Kansas. At Neighborhood Church, we seek to be a community that loves God and our neighbors together. If you would like to learn more about Neighborhood Church, please go to www.neighborhoodchurchop.com. Well, good morning, Neighborhood Church. Good morning. Welcome, everybody. We're so glad you're here worshiping with us this morning on a beautiful, beautiful spring day. Uh, I guess it might not be spring yet, but it feels like spring, that's for sure. It is spring. It's spring already. Joyous news. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, we're so glad you're here worshiping with us. Uh, Pastor Dave is at Beaver Baptist in Tennessee this morning. He is sharing a message with uh, the people of that church and visiting, and we wish him uh, and pray for him as he's preaching the word to them. Um, basically, with the church family, it kind of feels like our second family. They've come and partnered with us during our sports camp time. So just a really special opportunity where he got to go out there this weekend. We're going to be diving into Romans chapter 8 uh, this morning. I am uh, privileged and uh, honored, really, to share this passage with you. You know, if the Bible could be taken and turned into a soundtrack, right, or like an album, this would be like the greatest hits, like, I mean, on the greatest hits completely, and you'll see why in just a second. But we're going to open up to Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, and dive right in. Paul begins with saying, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for this wonderfully sweet passage that we get to open up and, and partake in this morning as our spiritual worship. Thank you for the encouraging love of Christ that never leaves us. May we be encouraged this morning in our love for you and your love for us, and may that propel us out into the community. May we take your light and gospel to the ends of the earth, starting right here in Overland Park, and may be out of a place of goodness and identity as your children that will never be taken from us. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul here in the first half of this passage is really concerned with one thing. He's concerned with the impossibility of any charge against the believer. And really any charge coming against us that we aren't really Christians, we aren't really children of God, and that charge being sustained or hearing it or listening to it, or it actually matters. And in the second section, 
Paul is concerned with the impossibility of anything separating us from God's love. So like I said, it's going to be a very encouraging text this morning. I hope you're encouraged as much as I was while I was studying this week. But I thought this, this passage starts, verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? Now, Paul is talking about all of Romans when he introduces this verse. He's not just talking about the last passage that Pastor Dick preached on, although it's included. He's a, he is talking about the entirety of the letter he has written to the Romans already. So I just did like 10 minutes, a brief like, hey, I, I highlighted some promises and benefits of Romans, and this was like in 10 minutes. And this list is not comprehensive at any rate, um, or it's not comprehensive at all. But this is just what I noticed through chapters 1 through 8. And how beautiful this is that Paul is talking about all these promises God makes us. That God's righteousness has been shown to us and his redemption through Christ has been testified by the prophets and the law. Meaning the Bible. We have the Bible that testifies to this good work that God has done through Christ. That we are justified by our faith in Christ's death and resurrection. That we have peace with God through Christ. That our sufferings in this world will not end in frustration, but in our being transformed in the very image of our Savior. That we surely can trust that God will raise us to eternal life with Christ. That we have been set free from our present, past, and future sins. That we are no longer captives to judgment and the conviction that the law brings, but we have been given the joy of complete purity before God through Christ. That we have an advocate with the Spirit who pay, prays for us in our weakness. That we are eternal heirs with Christ and his kingdom to come. And there's many others, right? And this is not comprehensive, but how beautiful these things that Paul has already brought up to the Roman church that when we put our faith in Christ, this is what God gives to us. How beautiful. So in verse 31, Paul, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Just this small list that I made from Romans, it brings us to this inevitable conclusion that God is on our side. It would be wrong to say anything less than God is for the sinners who are the objects of such extravagant and purposeful love. When our world and so many people who control it convey to the rest of us that God is just an angry deity in the sky, watching everything we do and ready to punish us at the drop of a pin, they obviously haven't spent much time in the book of Romans. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This verse highlights that God didn't spare his own son, and this language reminds us of the story of Abraham and Isaac and how Abraham really focusing in on one quality of Abraham's that he was ready to sacrifice Isaac when God called on him. Now, Isaac wasn't sacrificed and the angel of the Lord stayed Abraham's hand and the ram was provided as a sacrifice in Isaac's place. But, but Paul is highlighting Abraham's readiness to do what God had called him in the same way God's readiness to sacrifice Jesus in our place, that's what Paul is talking about. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, with Christ, who he sacrificed for us, graciously give us all these things we just talked about? When we needed a savior, Paul says God was ready to sentence his son to death. Of course, this brings up a rhetorical question. That God has given us his greatest gift, Christ himself, 
So all these other promises that might seem less than Christ, right, which in some qualitative way it is, right, Christ being the jewel, the crown, gift to us for our sins, the forgiveness of our sins, eternal life. But how can God not give us all the other things? The answer is he will. When God gives to his children, he does not do so with a hesitant hand. For instance, when we sin, we talk about God's forgiveness, his grace. When we go to his mercy again and again, we have a tendency to feel like a child who's just asked for a great sum of money from their parents and has to go back again asking for more. And we're afraid God's going to say no or he's going to be angry with us. But instead, when we repent, the Bible paints us a picture from the prodigal son story that God is already there with his spiritual grace out and ready to give more of it. How do we know this for sure? We know this stands because Christ died on the cross. We know it's true. We know the love of the Father is true because he gave us his own son. Christ is the proof. Verse 33 and 34 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Who's to say that we're not Christians? Who's to say that we won't be saved by the blood of Christ? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This passage brings up that there has always been a plethora of sources of people or place, or I shouldn't say places, but people and, and sources that are bringing charges against God's family, against Christians. For one, the very name Satan means accuser. And secondly, a place that might bring about an accusation against us is the world the ones who are not saved. And they're looking in usually on what happens in the family of God and, and especially when we treat each other poorly and, and we still sin, they are quick to condemn. And thirdly, from within our own hearts and our own spiritual voice when we doubt our faith in Christ. I want to address these three areas. The, the voices of condemnation, you can call them. Well, first, Satan and his demonic forces, they have had a terrible habit of spitting half-truths and lying to us. Their sole purpose is to try and undo God's doing. So taking their for your salvation is like drinking a medicine bottle from your known enemy that's labeled poison. We know it to be false. I shouldn't trust their opinion very much. As to the second... The world. Well, the world operates on its own sense of justice and usually offers themselves much more grace for their own lives than for anyone else's life, as we also can do as Christians. But they speak into spiritual circumstances without believing the same spiritual realities of our faith. Namely, that our perfection doesn't come from within ourselves or our good works but it rests within a totally different person than us, namely Christ. So taking the condemnation of the world as it looks in and 
says you all are fake. Taking the world seriously might be like letting someone help you build a piece of furniture while they use an instruction manual for a lawnmower. It's not going to work. They have different rules that they operate by. And lastly, to our own voices, which honestly can be the harshest critics at times as to whether or not we really are redeemed children of God. I say, why trust in our own hearts, which often lead us astray and confused? Why trust our minds that even on the simple, simple arguments in life and judgments in life have the hardest time being convinced of the right course of action? I mean, this is, <laughs> I mean this in the kindest way possible. We shouldn't listen to our hearts. We shouldn't listen to our own voices on whether or not we are Christians or not. To do so is like trying to use a butter knife for cutting bread or seeking solid ground on the high seas in the Pacific. It's useless. And in the end, it's bound to leave us frustrated and tossed back and forth. So where to go for the answers? The word of God. What God says about us. What God has done through Christ. Verse 33. It is no one but God who justifies sinners and makes them his children. It is not the authority of the devil, the world, or our own opinions. God will surely justify his own. We may very well be concerned about our sins, and we wonder whether or not in the end they might lead to eternal condemnation. That's an honest feeling we all get at some point. But Paul says he is sure that they will not, because it is God who justifies the believer's spiritual relationship with God can never be overthrown once the believer has been justified. It is not up to the believer at all. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Praise the Lord. My faith in Christ is dependent on Christ. My justification in God's eyes is dependent on Christ. Lord, help me not be tossed to and fro by my own heart, by the world, or by the devil. Help us all. This leads us into our first point this morning, that the good news of this passage, this first part, is that the only one who can condemn you died to save you. The only one who can condemn you died to save you. See, Jesus is the one who is the only one with the authority to judge us on judgment day. But the reassurance we have as Christians is that our judge came to die in our place. And if Christ stayed dead, that might cause us to think, well, who's going to judge us? But Paul says, wait, <laughs> he didn't just die. He rose again. And now he sits at the right hand of God, which is the judgment seat of God. And he has been given all power and authority. The one only he can condemn us. But he used his power, his authority to come down, to die on the cross for us. That is like the judge leaving his seat and going out to the electric chair after he sentences a criminal to death. 
That is what we trust in. Verse 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 35 is a wonderful assurance that Christ's love for us will always be there. It will never depart. These words Paul uses, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword are all things that come upon us in this life or can. Tribulation being outward pressure, right? Pressure from the world, pressure from your family who know you're a Christian, but they disagree with you. Distress could be affliction that's really internal. So your own doubts or or, or quandaries about what it means to be a Christian or faith or what, what did I just read in the Bible? Welcome to Neighborhood Church. This is a great place for you because we all have those questions. Persecution. This, this reminds us that it's a possibility that persecution for our faith in Christ, we might be treated differently. There might be relationships that we might not be a part of because we are Christians and not necessarily because we don't want to be a part of those, but because other people are keeping us from those things. And in the early church, the first, second, and third century in Rome was a disaster as far as persecution goes. Terrible, terrible tragedies they underwent in the first and second and third centuries. Paul says nakedness, which is basically like poverty. Back in biblical times, not everyone could afford clothes even. An intense poverty. The amount of money in your bank account doesn't mean that you are less than to another person who has more money in their bank account. When it comes to God's love for you, it's the same. Danger, sword, specifically means an end, an execution, your life ending because of your faith in Christ, which again was a very real reality for the Christians Paul was writing to currently and would continue on for several hundred years just in Rome, not speaking of anywhere else in the world. But Paul reminds these Christians that even the Israelites experienced this. See, he quotes from Psalm 44 in this passage. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. This is a moment in Israel's history when a psalmist is writing that they were faithful to the Lord. They loved the Lord well. The people culturally were known as people of God. They kept their promises to the Lord. They were his covenant people. And yet in Psalm 44, I looked at it and it says, the Israelites were regarded as a laughingstock of other people, a plundered people. Overcome by their enemies, scorned and scattered among the nations, disgraced, humiliated in front of the nations, all despite remaining faithful to God. And Paul was directing the Christians into us today. The reality is that people who love God wholeheartedly might undergo terrible suffering. He brings Roman Christians, and so us to the truth that for God's people, for Christians who love him, there's a real risk and call to real devotion today that might cost a great deal. We as Christians might be tempted to think because the love of God through Christ is sure, so too 
are the troubles and persecutions that we may experience. That we might not experience these things, we might not experience troubles and persecutions because God loves us. But God's saying, no. The love of Christ is sure, but troubles, persecutions, danger, sword, all these things might come upon you as well. But here's another beautiful part, verse 37. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors through him who loved us. You see, this suffering and persecution, they're not just mere evils that we have to endure in this life. But they can actually be the scene of overwhelming victory which Christians are winning through Christ. This verse emphasizes the totality of the victory that God gives his church under any circumstance. The ability to triumph over this adversity doesn't come from Christians inherently, but from the finality and the completeness of God's love for you through Jesus' death and resurrection. How can we know we're more than conquerors? Because the love of God is with you always. And Christ resurrected from the dead. Those things won't go back on themselves when you undergo terrible, terrible tragedy. This leads us to our second point this morning. There's only two points. Point number two is that the love of God will be with you always. If you're a Christian, the love of God will be with you always. Verse 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't say the word nor very much, so I said it a lot there, a lot this week, but it's a beautiful passage that reminds us that the love of God will always be with us. Paul starts out verse 38, for I am sure This is saying, I have no doubt. I am convinced of this. There's no doubt in Paul's mind at all that death or life, death being the greatest frustration, the greatest agitator that we know and experience in this world, that through Christ's death, he swallowed up death. Through his resurrection, we now can hope beyond death. Paul says the fears in life also, right? And fear of life, what is that? Well, what keeps you up at night? (laughs) Well, what occupies your mind that you are fearful of that you think, how is this going to happen? What's going to turn out? I don't know what's coming next. Maybe it's paying the bills. Maybe it's being a father or mother, right? And maybe it's uh, these um, fear fear of being jobless, right? Losing your, your house, losing your family, Growing up, I know there's a lot of students in the room. Do you think about becoming an adult and maybe the fear that comes into your mind, the responsibilities God has given you? Maybe it's just the fear of being a Christian in today's climate. There's a great many fears in life, right? But Paul says, this will not separate us from the love of God. He goes on to say, angels and rulers... This is just a spiritual authority other than God. Rulers is translated as demons in some translations. 
but it just means an authority other than God's. Creatures that we would marvel at if we saw one. But even these creatures will not come between us and the love of God through Christ. Present things, sufferings we're going through now, or things to come, Paul says. The sufferings that we have no idea are right around the corner. But because of this life and the way it is through sin and circumstance, it might come quicker than we think. Nor powers. <laughs> this word power was really used uh, to describe a magician, right? The powers or persuasions of man, that uh, a charlatan, someone who came in and would try to trick other people for their purposes or their ends, their schemes of man, not even the schemes of man, the, the words of a man, the words I might say of a, a pastor, the words of a man who you might give authority to, they will not come between you and the love of God through Jesus. Verse 39 says, height or depth. This implies location. There's nowhere you can go. There's nowhere you can travel where you will be outside the love of God in Christ. He finishes this beautiful passage by saying, nothing created, nothing we will experience, not anything has the power to separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ. The love of God is God's love for us. I think that's one of the great things to take away from this is that God's love for us is being talked about in this passage, not our love for God. That this promised love will never leave us because it's God's love for us. And though our hearts might turn away, we might doubt, we might be frustrated, we might get angry and turn away and our love and devotion to God might falter, his love is sure. So if none of these things can bring about separation, should believers fear? If we're assured that God will always keep us secure in his great love, why should we fear? Well, I love looking at history, especially in the context of the passage, and I want to share with you the story of Perpetua, Felicity and Blandy, and the three women who believed this from the message of Paul, the book of Romans they would have read and been familiar with. They would have read Romans 8. They were Christian women living in 203 AD. And it might seem like a tragedy, but I hope you might see a a great victory in this story as well. In 203 AD, 140 years after Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, the open persecution of Christians had been accepted for over 150 years. In the northern North African Roman city of Carthage, in a terrible prison cell close to the Gladiator Stadium, Gladiator Stadium, excuse me, there were three women, Perpetua, Felicity and Blandina. Perpetua was a Roman woman of respectable Roman family around the age of 22 who had recently given birth to her first child. Felicity and Blandina were Roman slave girls and Felicity was at the time pregnant with her own child. All three women were accused of the same crime, punishable by torture and death on public display. The crime of being Christians They would not sacrifice to the false gods of the Romans. They would not sacrifice to the emperor of Rome, which was a common practice. 
The women refused to go back on their beliefs that Jesus was their only Lord and Savior, no matter the cost. As such, they were all sentenced to death in the Carthaginian Colosseum. Under Roman law, however, no woman could be executed while pregnant, for the child inside her had not committed her crimes. So the execution of all three were delayed. Delayed, that is, until just two days after Felicity gave birth to her baby in the prison. Long before Perpetua's arrest, her father pleaded with her time and again to go back on what she believes. Turn back to following the Roman ways, at least for a while, so that you can be safe. But at every attempt Perpetua's father made towards her, she refused to give up her faith in Christ. On the day of their execution, the women came into the arena to a packed house of Romans who despised them and hated how many Christians were now growing in their nation and influencing their pagan culture. They shouted and mocked the women as they were flogged publicly. While the Christian sisters were waiting their ultimate suffering, even the Roman guards wondered how Felicity, who had just given birth, would handle facing the beasts. She responded, A little while ago in my childbirth, my sufferings were for me. But when I face the beast, there will be another who will live in me and will suffer for me, since I shall be suffering for him. A massive bull with curled horns was led out into the arena in front of Perpetua and Felicity. Felicity was trampled and gored almost immediately, and she died swiftly. Blandina was hung from her hands from a wooden pole where wild beasts of all kinds were poked and prodded towards her. For some reason, the animals weren't drawn to her as much as the crowd wanted, so Blandina was put in a net and trampled by the bull, martyred for her faith in Christ. Perpetua's death was different. After trampling Felicity, the bull would not go near Perpetua, who had already been thrown by the bull's horns and was still alive. The spiteful crowd grew grew furious and enraged. They screamed for her to die. A Roman gladiator stepped forward and drew his sword. He began to plunge his blade into her side, but he hesitated. Struck most likely by how horrid he felt in committing such a movement with his blade, Perpetua looked at him with the eyes of her Savior, who at his death asked for the forgiveness of those that killed him. And she put her hand on his, and he finally continued, striking the fatal blow. It is said that many Romans, upon seeing this, these terrible murders came to faith in Christ, including the Roman governor of that province. This is only one story of thousands upon thousands of men and women who have laid down their lives for their faith in Christ, who modeled the end of their life the same way Christ modeled his for us, that he laid down his life for us. They truly believed that no power of man, no authority in this world could snatch them from the Father's hand. For all the Christians who have died for their faith have understood their life is as secure as the love of God through Christ for all eternity, as their earthly life is unsure and unpredictable. 
If we truly believe the love of Jesus will never leave us and will always be with us, this will change how we live our lives and specifically how we go through hardships, struggles, persecutions, and sufferings. Because it is within these moments of pain and suffering that we do and will suffer the most. It is true. But we also have the opportunity to display the greatest light, the enduring love of Jesus to the world in the greatest way. So take heart with me today, fellow Christians, brothers and sisters. Our sins are forgiven. The only one who can condemn us died to save us. And no matter where you go, who you talk to, how you have lived, what's going on in your life now, and what you will go through, the love of Jesus is right there alongside you. More and more as we walk through our lives, may we become a church that when we go through hard things together, that we can turn to Romans 8 and say, just like Paul, with confidence, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Draws us into your love, gives us security. gives us our identity as your children once again, that it's you who calls out. It's you who's done the saving on the cross and through the resurrection. It's you who offers us forgiveness time and time again. And you are glad to do so because we're coming to you as children come to their father. And a father who wants the good of his children loves to see their children come to him. Thank you, Father, for this great message that nothing in this world will take away the love of Christ from us. May we latch on to that today. May we live as a Christian community like this. May we offer this identity, this love that you have for us with the rest of our neighborhood, the rest of the world. We love you and praise you. Thank you, God, for this great, great message. Thank you for brothers and sisters who have given us a model to follow as they followed the model of Christ and laying down their life that they recognize that their strength is in their weakness. Thank you for these pictures that motivate us to love you more and to see the love that you have for us that's so great. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.